Uh, welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jillian Perkins. I'm the Director of Communications at Arnrich Messina, and I'm here today with James Ellis, our Senior Consultant. James has done some considerable research into how public universities may be able to stay funded and affordable in spite of massive decreases in state spending on higher education. And he's here to share some insights on that with us today. Before we start, just some quick background. Arnrich Messina is a Portland-based investment advisory firm. We've been in business for more than 25 years, bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to nonprofit endowments and foundations, high net worth individuals and families, and corporate clients. James works specifically with institutional clients, including university foundations and endowments, building investment programs, and helping guide their investment committees. We recently published a white paper called Keeping College Affordable, How to Fund Public University Obligations in a Low-Return Environment, which is available on our website at www.arnrichmessina.com. James, as a primary contributor to the paper, offers us some terrific solutions for public colleges as they look up to make funding shortfalls. So with that, let's dive right in, and he can share some of these solutions to keeping college affordable. So let's start by taking a look at the problem. James, can you tell us about why public universities are struggling for funding? Well, thank you, Jillian. Uh, there's just a lot of demand for resources at the state level as it relates to taxes. K-12 education, corrections, you know, police and fire, but namely Medicaid uh, spending has been the single biggest contributor to the decline in higher education spending. Uh, mm -hmm. There's uh, just a, you know, an aging population situation that's just you know, demanding mm -hmm. resources at the state level. Uh, just to quantify this, overall state funding in 2017 was nearly $9 billion below the 2008 level in real terms. So $9 billion in wow. aggregate at the state level, or at the uh, nationwide level, excuse me. Wow. Uh, just to further quantify this, that's a 25% drop in state spending per student uh, from 1987 to 2017, again, in real terms. So that is definitely a problem. What about raising tuition? Is that an option? Well, that's, you know, been kind of the, uh, the other end of the ballast, if you will, with a decline in, uh, you know, uh, st state funding at, at the uh, state level. Uh, you know, tuitions have gone up. It's almost an, an inverse right. relationship. Yeah. Uh, so the average annual net in-state cost of tuition for a four-year state college student has doubled in real terms from 1997 to 2017. So that's a, that's a pretty big jump, you know, 20 year period, uh, we've seen a double uh, in terms of uh, all in uh, tuition, including wow. room and board and uh, the actual tuition itself. Right. Uh, In-state tuition and fees at the four-year public colleges have increased an average rate of 3.2% beyond inflation for that same 20 year period. So just to put that in perspective a little bit more there. Now, this increased tuition impacts a student body and opportunities, particularly uh, at the lower uh, income end of the mm -hmm. spectrum. You know, the students that basically need to go to college the most or could get the most boost in terms of their lifetime earnings uh, just simply aren't able to do so as a result of this or just may decide that it's just not a worthwhile investment. But another area where this shows up is in terms of the quality of education. 
right. you know, just less investments in terms of uh, capital resources for the students to take advantage of as it relates to technology, you know, uh, classroom funding, uh, quality of uh, professors and things of that regard. So, you know, that's, that overall undermines the objective of the uh, educational institution itself, in, in my opinion. Right, that makes sense. So no more tuition hikes, but in the paper, you outline two main kinds of solutions. So let's start with the first one, which is fundraising. The first fundraising technique that you recommend is something called a corporate sponsorship. So what is that and how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. This is an interesting solution that we found during our research into this paper. Now, what a corporate sponsorship entails is a local uh, corporation, be it uh, you know public or private, I, I don't think that really has a bearing on anything, uh, will essentially help develop a curriculum uh, that uh, the, the students should then be taught in class. Now this requires special education of uh, the professors actually teaching the material. Uh, sometimes there'll be investment in terms of, uh, you know, again, technology as it relates to software or computer hardware. Uh, that's specific. Uh, so uh, the end result is the student that comes out of this program has specific training to the corporation itself. Mm -hmm. So uh, everyone benefits from this type of mm -hmm. arrangement. Uh, the corporation gets uh, highly skilled, highly trained employees that are specific to their needs in the workforce. Right. Uh, the students get practical knowledge and experience that you know has real world uh, usage. Uh, and the school gets funding. Uh, you know, there's uh, often an opportunity for internships along the way as well. So the student sure. uh, has the ability to learn outside of school as well as inside of school. Now, there's a variety of avenues for these corporate sponsorships. Uh, again, they could be scholarships, uh, donations to the actual endowment itself, um, and and also again, uh, you know, endowed professorships and mm -hmm. investments in capital resources for the institution as a whole. Wow, so that does sound like a win-win. Everybody gets something out of it, the students, the school. Uh, do you know of colleges that have used corporate sponsorships and has it been successful? Yes, absolutely. So we col col collaborated with uh, a university in the Cal State uh, uh, University system. Uh, they are currently partnering with various uh, local uh, institutions within their community as it relates to finance, agriculture, engineering, construction management, computer science, pharmaceuticals, and chemistry. So they have a very well thought out, well defined process for identifying these corporations and taking advantage of, uh, again, the synergies between the private community and the public institution. So uh, for instance, one of the, uh, one of the uh, examples I was provided was uh, this, this particular university is located in a, an agrarian-based economy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, instead of training, you know, the, uh, the, the, well, first off, the students get great training as it relates to engineering, as it relates to, you know, agrarian type of uses, but also financial institutions uh, who specifically want to target farmers uh, for equipment leases and things like that. So uh, the financial sector uh, also uh, has an interest in training students for a particular population or demographic in the local community as well, which is exactly what's happening at this particular institution. Right. Well, that sounds like a great solution. You've mentioned another fundraising technique, which involves reaching out to school alumni also. Tell us about that and how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, been something that the private universities uh, have been doing for years. I mean, let's face it, uh, the human capital of the alumni base is, is probably the, the largest asset of any educational right. institution since they've directly had an effect mm -hmm. in building uh, that particular capital. So uh, tapping into uh, potential past students is certainly a, a good place to, to start when it comes to uh, fundraising. 
so you know, alumni uh, are, are another source of potential fundraising along with corporate sponsorships in that regard. Right. So in the paper, you even provide some tips for how to reach out to alumni and do that successfully. Um, what suggestions do you have for public colleges that haven't really done this type of fundraising before? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the, the key ways that uh, a public institution can uh, go down the path of fundraising from alumni is to make that emotional connection. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's, you know, all sorts of memories that I have from going to college that I'm sure everybody shares as well. So, you know, eating at a particular restaurant, maybe a, a place where you met a significant other or, you know, a particular professor that you like or just the smell of a, of a dorm room, if you will. So <laughs> there's, always, there's always that emotional connection to going to college. Yeah. So tapping into the, the emotional memories, the, the knowledge of, you know, the experiences you had at a particular institution is a great way to uh, approach uh, alumni. Uh, and, and each institution is going to be unique in that regard. Uh, also, uh, you know, I should, uh, I should say it will come with costs in terms of building a fundraising outreach program and it'll take time to ramp up. Yeah. Now, uh, just to put uh, some statistics around that, uh, studies show that, uh, that a, a typical alumni outreach program can raise $1 for every 24 cents invested. So, wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's some ROI there. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, some programs are uh, more, uh, have more optionality, if you will, than others, mm -hmm. but uh, just an aggregate, a dollar for every 24 cents invested. So it's a good return on investment, wow. like, like you say, Jillian. Um, you know, another, uh, another approach is don't be afraid to cultivate major donors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's obviously going to be uh, that cadre of successful individuals who, uh, you know, were able to, uh, to really benefit both themselves and, you know, perhaps a community. So uh, cultivating those major donors is going to be uh, crucial in any sort of outreach. Right. So, uh, you know, again, uh, it's important to, to tap into that, uh, you know, emotional connection to the institution, mm -hmm. but also answer why. Why would you want to give to this? Why, why, why would you want to yeah. donate to the uh, institution itself? Uh, well, it's obviously to, you know, help the, the next class of students who will be the leaders in the community right. who, will, who will be the ones who uh, you will work with or you know uh, perhaps uh, request services from at some point in the future so yeah. answering that question of why is going to be important as well yeah um, well that is great advice in terms of fundraising that I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about investment tips because in the paper in addition to fundraising ideas you also provide some uh, investment solutions and this is really the key focus for us since we are an investment firm um, but before we talk about the specific suggestions in the title we call this um, in a low return environment how to fund public university obligations in a low return environment so what makes you say that this is a low return environment yeah absolutely that's a great question and something i uh, address quite frequently so we are in a low return environment meaning stocks and bonds both collectively uh, when constructed into a portfolio just simply won't be able to provide the returns mm. of the past decades uh, our internal research has shown that a uh, diversified portfolio has declined from about uh, 12 percent uh, in the 80s to you know roughly about five and a half percent today wow yeah so that's a significant decrease in terms of what the markets uh, can be expected to provide going forward so uh, that's what i mean by low return environment now by and large this is due to a variety of factors a variety of headwinds in terms of the uh, underlying capital markets but one of them being unwinding monetary stimulus uh, we've gone from a quantitative easing 
uh, from the Federal Reserve to now what's termed in the media as quantitative tightening. Mm -hmm. uh, this all ended with the taper tantrum in about 2013. Uh, the bonds that the uh, Federal Reserve uh, was buying throughout, uh, you know, the 2000s and early to, uh, you know, 2010s uh, are slowly rolling off the balance sheet. Now, this is, you know, uh, monetary tightening, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, along with that, uh, we have a rising interest rate environment. Um, interest rates have gone from basically zero interest rate policy, ZERP, if you will, uh, in the uh, mid-2000s to currently two and a quarter percent. And the Federal Reserve is expected to keep hiking rates, uh, you know, possibly another time in December to two and a half, and possibly two to three times more in 2019. So, wow. th so this does cause a headwind to interest-sensitive uh, investments, namely housing, automobiles, mm -hmm. and just consumer goods. So, the consumer is, you know, expected to face some headwinds in that regard. Right. Now, we also have a demographic issue going on in that, uh, you know, we have an aging population. Uh, a, a population that is no longer earning income and, um, you know, just kind of downsizing, if you will. So, mm -hmm. again, another headwind to uh, the consumer. And, um, you know, I should back up and say the consumer spending makes up about two-thirds of uh, right. the U.S. GDP. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, the, the significant headwind to uh, consumer spending is certainly going to have a, um, create headwinds for the uh, economy as a whole. Now, along with that, we also have uh, high valuations in the equity markets, mm -hmm. uh, price to earning ratios, uh, forward, current, past, however you want to slice it and dice it. Uh, any sort of valuation metric you look at as it relates to U.S. stocks are currently, uh, you know, over, overextended. So, so that's another headwind to the, uh, to the you know, causing the, the low return environment. Now, there's certainly opportunities overseas. Um, but uh, for the most part, U.S. stocks are a little uh, overextended at these levels, if not fairly valued, uh, right. just to be you know, kind to the situation. Right. So it's a definitely a challenging environment for investors. Um, so when you first look at a public university's investment portfolio in this kind of environment facing these headwinds, um, when they're struggling to meet their objectives, what's, what do you look at overall, first of all? Yeah, uh, um, you know, one of the main things I look at, uh, most uh, not-for-profits have a perpetual time horizon, meaning mm. they're investing, you know, their, their timeline is forever. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So uh, as a result, uh, a lot of educational institutions and other not-for-profits can handle a lot of volatility. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with that volatility should come higher returns if, uh, if the, the portfolio is properly allocated. So the first thing I look at is, are they invested aggressively enough? Uh, it's, it's interesting, uh, a study we, we outline in the, uh, the white paper shows that it's, it's always been difficult to obtain a 7.5% real return. Right. Or, uh, I'm sorry, 7.5% return in the portfolio or 5% real spending rate. That's always been difficult. Yeah. So going forward, that's going to be uh, even more difficult. So. Uh, and, uh, you know, investing more aggressively is certainly going to help in that regard and, uh, you know, being able to absorb the volatility that comes with that. Uh, another uh, area that I, I tend to review is, is the portfolio properly diversified? Is mm. the mix of international to U.S. equities uh, appropriate uh, given, uh, you know, global, G, uh, global output and production? Uh, are there alternatives in the portfolio? Uh, things of that nature. Uh, again, I alluded to the time horizon, but again, it's important to, to come back to that and just say that uh, you know a, a college endowment should be invested with a perpetual time horizon and absorb the volatility uh, you know that, that comes along with it. 
And, and in regards to that, it's important to minimize cash and fixed income holdings. Let's face it, with uh, the 10-year the currently about 3.1, 3.2%, that's a, you know roughly a real 1.2%. Right. It's going to be very difficult to obtain a real 5% uh, spending rate uh, with fixed income holdings. And cash, right. uh, you know, you're barely covering inflation with cash. So minimizing cash and fixed income holdings is going to be paramount to uh, obtaining a 5% real return going forward. Yeah, that's a great point, a time horizon and perpetuity. Um, so you also talk about active management and how can this benefit a university's portfolio? Yeah, uh, so both active and passive can play a role. Again, uh, you know, I'll come back to U.S. large cap stocks. Uh, it's any piece of information is typically reflected uh, in the in the marketplace. So uh, it, it's a very efficient asset class. <clears throat> excuse me, so to speak. So uh, there's just not much opportunity for alpha unless you take a concentrated approach mm. in U.S. stocks. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, active and passive can play a role. Now, active management does help in areas like emerging markets or international small caps right. uh, where uh, there's less information, uh, you know, information is harder to parse out, uh, there's less uh, research analysts following uh, the underlying securities. Mm -hmm. So uh, active management can play a role in these less efficient asset classes. Now, another area uh, that has some uh, less efficiency is the fixed income markets. Mm. Uh, you know, intermediate fixed income is not representative of the entire intermediate fixed income universe. So, so there's certainly areas to add alpha in fixed income as well. So if you are to have an allocation to fixed income, uh, we typically do recommend active uh, in that particular asset, mm -hmm. asset class. So, uh, you know, there's efficient asset classes and less efficient uh, asset classes. Uh, in the less efficient asset classes, there's just simply more opportunities for alpha. Right. And uh, active managers can pursue opportunities and act defensively should we experience right. a downturn in the market. They, uh, active managers on, on, the, on the whole typically hold higher quality uh, securities with a, you know, a larger economic moats, if you will, that typically do well in a downturn. Yep. So uh, there is an opportunity for uh, to be defensive with active management. But to put it all together, uh, active management risk is compensated risk if mm. it is managed properly. So that's a right. key takeaway I, I think I would want to point to for this discussion. Right. That's important to remember. So I want to go back. You mentioned alternative investments. Um, what do you tell your university clients about alternative investing? So nonprofits have been increasing their allocation to alternatives, uh, you know, over the past, say, 30 years. There's empirical data, no shortage of empirical data that points to this. Mm -hmm. uh, public markets are becoming more concentrated. Uh, if you can imagine, Jillian, there was about 8,000 public companies in 1997. Right. There's now 4,400 public Jeez. companies uh, in wow. the U.S., I should say. So that's a 45% drop uh, from, you know, over almost a 20-year period. Uh, of those companies that are public, uh, buybacks have become more prominent. So there's just less mm -hmm. public stock available. So what that does is it, is it creates uh, more opportunities in private markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and alternative investments are a good vehicle to approach those private markets. Uh, now, alternative investments do typically provide greater long-term potential, particularly as it relates to uh, private equity or illiquid partnerships. Um, and, and when they're combined in the, uh, the portfolio structure, uh, adding alternatives in can often uh, reduce risk uh, with the same or even higher rates of return. That's fantastic. Um, so you also were talking about the, the when you talked about the time horizon and perpetuity and, and being able to afford some illiquidity. And in the paper you mentioned the illiquidity premium. What's that and how can that um, 
do something for our university's portfolio. The illiquidity premium typically refers to the fact that a portfolio manager of an illiquid uh, investment, be it a, a limited partnership or what have you, uh, can hold on to securities through thick and thin so they can absorb volatility uh, as it relates to cycles in the underlying uh, you know, macro environment. So, you know, if, if, for instance, if a portfolio manager buys a, uh, you know, a, a cyclical company, mm -hmm. um, they can certainly wait it out until the, uh, you know, the end of the 10-year period or whatever period the partnership right. might be, so they can just, just absorb more volatility. I like to think of private equity managers as long volatility and short liquidity, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, whereas an absolute return manager may be uh, short volatility and long liquidity. So right. you're getting the inverse of that through the illiquidity premium. But um, it, it's also important to say that liquidity comes with a cost uh, and illiquidity, again, can just simply bring a premium by design uh, for investors who are willing to invest in illiquid assets. Uh, there are certainly opportunities in private markets uh, for these types of investments. Uh, but it, you know, again, uh, it is important to construct the portfolio with the liquidity needs in mind. I mean, you're not going to be able to tap into these uh, illiquid partnerships without a great deal of friction, if you will. So maintaining liquidity in other areas of the portfolio and right-sizing the position is going to be crucial in terms of being successful with these types of programs. Right. Now, uh, I, I will also point out, Jillian, that endowments with higher allocations to private markets have outperformed their peers over any sort of time frame that you want to try and imagine. There's plenty of data that point to this as well. Wow, so this is really, this would be critical for, um, for a university looking to make up some of that funding shortfall, definitely. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about risk and volatility for a bit. Um, how do you construct portfolios to address some different risks? Well, first off, uh, Jillian, it's important to define the risk. Mm -hmm. uh, that risk can take on various different uh, types of categories, if you will, such as peer risk. Uh, you know, perhaps there's 10 or 20 institutions that, uh, you know, a, a college university business officer is following mm -hmm. that they want to, uh, you know, outperform or at least perform in line with. You certainly right. don't want to be at the bottom of the pack right. when, it, when it comes to your return. So there's a certain element of peer risk or keeping up with, uh, you know, your, your peer group. There's also benchmark risk. Uh, typically, uh, you know, when a portfolio is constructed, a portfolio benchmark is uh, constructed as well. So you certainly want to outperform that uh, benchmark, uh, at least perform in line, but you definitely don't want to underperform that benchmark. Right. So that's, that's important when it comes to discussing risk. Um, there's also liquidity risk. Uh, like I was mentioning previously, if you're too over-allocated to a liquid investments, uh, you may face some sort of liquidity shortfall. So that's right. a, a risk that has to be uh, uh, included as well. Now, with uh, investing in perpetuity, there's also an inflation risk. So investing in uh, you know, real assets, be it oil and gas partnerships, REITs, MLPs, inflation-sensitive securities to help overcome that inflation risk is going to be paramount. But I'll also say this, uh, Jillian, there's a, a concept of maverick risk or you know, being too over-allocated into a certain asset class and then not having that, that bet, if right. you will, work yeah. out. So there's a certain element of maverick risk as well. You don't want to, well, if you, if you are different from the pack, you better be right. Yeah, <laughs> this is exactly. what it boils down to. It's <laughs> a good name too, maverick risk. Um, well, that is fantastic, James. Some really great advice, both on the fundraising side and on the investment side. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you want to give to public universities um, working in this area? 
Absolutely, Jillian. So when it comes to you know funding this shortfall and uh, decreasing taxes coming from public state coffers, it's important to maintain a long-term focus, building out fundraising strategies, corporate sponsorships, uh, investing the portfolio into uh, you know a, 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 an investment profile that's more in line with a perpetual time horizon. Mm -hmm. These are all very long-term type of goals. So. Uh, you know, devising, you know, 30 plus year plans in that regard is going to mm -hmm. be important. Maintaining a long term focus, I can't stress that enough. Uh, it's important also to craft a disciplined investment policy, again, that defines those spending goals as well as uh, risk tolerances and any unique needs uh, the institution may have as well. Right. Uh, it's also important to rebalance, uh, have some sort of rebalancing policy, be it one year four years, and that's not necessarily, Jillian, to increase returns, it's more uh, to reduce risk in the portfolio. So a, a discipline rebalancing policy is always needed as well. Yep, that makes sense. If the university wanted to reach out and talk to you directly to learn more about this or to actually get help from you, how would they reach you? Well, Jillian, my email is jellis, J-E-L-L-I-S, at am-a.com. So uh, certainly email me there, or my phone number is 503-239-0475. Uh, anybody is able to call me there as well. That is fantastic. So do please feel free to reach out to James if you would like more information um, or his help directly. And I want to say a huge thank you to you, James, for sharing your insights today. Um, you can visit our website to read the complete white paper, Keeping College Affordable, How to Fund Public University Obligations in a Low-Return Environment, at our website, rnurchmessina.com. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jillian. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Arnurch Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information. 